Go ahead and turn in the Word of God to the Gospel of Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 13. This evening we're closing out, at least for this time, a series looking at the parables of Jesus. We certainly have not touched all of them. There are more than 20 different parables in the Gospels. But we've seen something of a sampling about how they reveal, as well as conceal, different truths about the kingdom. This evening we're picking up more or less in the same passage that we were in last week. We left off in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. If you weren't here, Jesus compared the kingdom to people who are seeking a treasure that is of priceless value. We see the kingdom to belong, to know the Lord, is of priceless value. And then those who will inherit the kingdom are those who pursue it at all costs. But now in the very next verse, we take up at verse 47, Jesus is going to approach this from the opposite angle, that also the kingdom will unfold or unfold in such a way that there will be those identified with it, but who are not pursuing it in truth. And so let's hear together the words of the Lord beginning at verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Let's ask the Lord to bless our consideration. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider your word, and we ask this evening that your Holy Spirit would work in us that good thing. Whatever you desire, Lord, we ask that you would please soften our hearts to receive it. Immediately after this passage, Jesus asked the disciples, do you understand what you've heard? And we ask, Lord, that you would give us understanding. But even more, we ask that you would give us an inclination to receive and to run with these things. We pray all of this asking for your mercy upon us and in order that we might glorify you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this parable, Jesus compares the unfolding of his heavenly kingdom to the opening out the workings of a fishing net. And to the people who heard Jesus, most of them, this would have been very familiar. You might be aware that several of the original disciples were themselves professional fishermen. So Jesus doesn't elaborate. He doesn't tell you so many details. They understand how this works, and it would have been very poignant. It's a lesson, I think, to all of us about the importance of finding the right way to communicate with people, to speak in a way that they will understand, not just how you understand it. But what does Jesus have in mind here? Start by simply picturing how this works, because maybe you're not familiar with it. When Jesus talks about fishing here, he has in view commercial fishing, as was done on the Sea of Galilee. 
From what archaeologists can tell us about that time, from what remains in the written record about fishing at that time, we have a pretty good idea. In fact, in many places in the world, it really has not changed substantially in all of these thousands of years. The net that they would be using would be anywhere from about 750 to 1,000 feet long. This is not small. This is a big net. At the ends of the net, it's about the height, a little shorter than the height, of an average person in that time, five feet tall. At the middle of the net, it's about 25 feet tall. And there would be corks along what they call the headline, the top of the rope, and then there'd be weights at the bottom of the rope so that it stands vertically like a big wall in the sea. And basically, the fishermen would go out from the shore and they'd make a big arc with the net, letting it out as they go, and they'd come back to the shore. So now it's like a big sea, a big horseshoe wall. Once they're back, the men would stand on both sides, either end of this net, and they'd begin to pull it in. Right? You got this picture now. This is a big net, and they're pulling in, and of course the net is not designed like those children's toys where there's the square cut out, the circle cut out. It doesn't just catch the right kind of fish. It gets all the fish. All the fish are coming in. And once they've pulled in the haul, then it's the job of the fishermen to sort what is good for market and what is worthless. And of course, there's going to be a mixture. There might be some dead fish in there, and those are the bad fish. But also, you have to appreciate, this is being spoken to Jews living under the Old Covenant with all kind of dietary restrictions. So the book of Leviticus mentions, for instance, certain fish that are unclean, fish that don't have scales. And they're using the word fish not in the scientific sense, just if it's in the water, there's a fish. If it doesn't have scales... If it doesn't have fins and a number of other categories, if it's a bottom feeder that feeds on dead things, you don't eat it, that's unclean. And so the fishermen are sorting out from this big net what is acceptable and clean, good for the market, and then what is unacceptable, unclean, and putting it away. Wonderfully, this is one of the parables where most of the work is done in the fact that Jesus explains it very plainly. If you look at me at verses 49 and 50, Jesus says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He could not be any more clear. If people don't hear this, it's not because he didn't speak plainly. It's because they wish not to hear it. But Jesus is telling us that until his second coming, his kingdom is going to enfold all kinds of people. The ministry of the gospel, the activity of the local church and all the various institutions connected, all the organic life of Christian people, will have a way like a magnet of pulling to itself all kinds of people, both believers and unbelievers, converted and unconverted. The kingdom will attract many. And you don't get the sense that it's God casting out a line like the elect is something that you'll gather in a day with you know, just one line. He's sending out this huge net. And the Lord understands that the visible church will take into it 
a multitude of unconverted people too. It will not be until the end that the unclean are separated out. And you get this sense already in the New Testament as you read through. You have on the one hand so-called good fish, people who have genuine faith. And when we say good, we don't necessarily mean that they are the most morally upstanding as people would look at them. Peter, take Peter for instance. Jesus says of him, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Peter has genuine faith. That same night he denies the Lord, but then he repents. That same Peter has to be rebuked by the Apostle Paul to his face because he's fallen back into the same patterns of sin, serious sin, many years later. And he repents. The good fish are primarily characterized by faith and lifelong repentance. But then there are the bad fish. And you think of people like Judas, it must have been a tremendous upset when he betrays the Lord. And Jesus is readying the disciples for these kinds of events. You have Judas, of whom Jesus says he was a devil from the beginning. That he was in it for the money, that he was stealing from the bag. And for the admiration and maybe a seat at the table when the Jews gained fresh power. And so there are people who are drawn to the kingdom, sometimes for that reason, money or power or admiration. In 3 John, it mentions a man named Diotrephes, of whom he says he must have the preeminence. Some people like a very tall hat. Some people like a very special outfit or a badge. And the hope of getting that in this life is a powerful magnet to them. And they may even tell themselves that they are doing it for God. Humans are not black and white cardboard cutouts. We are incredibly complicated creatures. Our motives can be very mixed. Or you have others like Ananias who sought to be thought holy in all that he gave. But then look at verse 25, or rather verse 32 again. Oh, forgive me, this is actually Matthew 25, verse 32 where Jesus says very plainly what the end will be. Matthew 25, verse 32. Speaking of the end of the age, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It's just like that image at the end where the fish are being sorted out. The good fish, the bad fish, the sheep and the goats. You find this again and again in the scripture. It will not in till the very end, be the case that we have a totally pure church. That's the basic doctrine being presented here. Christ wants all disciples to have that clearly in their mind. We are a mixed church. It's a big net. But the question is why? Why did Christ desire his disciples to know this? Why did the Holy Spirit, of all the things that Jesus said, why did the Holy Spirit want this to be in the scriptures, this particular parable? Why this evening in God's providence does the Holy Spirit want you to consider this again? We're going to consider essentially two main responses that God calls his people to, that God is calling you to. When you consider this parable, there are are many other responses, sure, but these are the main two that you should have in mind. The first is simply this. This parable teaches you, and God is calling you, do not become overwhelmed with dismay or disappointment or disgust, or disillusionment. When you see the visible church polluted with many gross sins and many errors, it is a big net. 
It's a big net. And we should expect to find within that net, the Lord didn't say that it was going to be a a, a tiny little net and only the most obviously faithful, though these are the really evident believers are going to be in it. In this age, the net is huge. Just today, there's over 2 billion professing Christians in the world. 2 billion. I can't wrap my head around 100,000 as a number. One time, I think I've mentioned this before, one time as an exercise, I was studying the Civil War in junior high, and we read about how 60,000 people died in one day, and as an exercise, I would encourage all children to do this. Grab a pen or a pencil, write 60,000 individual dots on a piece of paper. See how long it takes. You give up at some point when you're overwhelmed at just the dots, And now appreciate, just today, two billion people on the planet are in some way associated with the kingdom of Christ. And of course, they're mixed in motives. They have different ideas of what it means to be a Christian, all of that. And part of the devil's strategy is to discredit the name of Christ by all that is out there. You you look into the net and you see this hideous eel and you think, ah, what is this? And people look at some of those, many of those who profess the name of Christ as they will show up in every local church and sometimes have tremendous positions of authority and influence and say, how can this possibly be true? If Christ cared so much about his kingdom, if he's really a king, he would not let that person be there. That person would be out. Why hasn't God struck that person dead? He struck Ananias and Sapphira dead. But here's the thing. The Lord sometimes, most frequently, makes his point. He's not quick to wrath. You have to, when you think about Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, who are struck dead early on for their sin against the Holy Spirit, that's not the Lord losing his temper. If God was prone to lose his temper, we'd all be done. Very rarely the Lord throughout history has made examples to show us that he does care and there will be a day of judgment. And so those kinds of judgments are a foretaste of that final separation. But when we lose sight of this, we become extremely discouraged or disillusioned. Is Christianity even true? And maybe you're wrestling with that. Things that you have seen over the last few years, either in your direct personal experience or maybe things that you read about on the internet, I don't know what the algorithm is, but it seems that the algorithm will always do the most to tear down your faith. And the Lord is calling us not to lose hope in these things. Look at verse 34 and 35. Matthew 13, 34 and 35. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. And without a parable, he spoke nothing to them, so that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter secret things from the foundation of the world. From the foundation of the world, this is according to plan. It was not understood by many, and yet it is according to plan. You think of some infantrymen in the military, and they may not understand exactly what the, how this step fits into the whole plan, but there's a boost in confidence when you understand It is unfolding the way that they intended it to. Whoever's above us, if it seems that it's unfolding how they described it, there's confidence there. 
And there are a number of parables where Jesus says this is exactly what's going to happen. You think of the parable of the mustard seed being so small, but in the end, it becomes a great tree that can house all of these birds coming in. It goes from just that big to a huge tree. And even so, the church, as a visible institution, as an organic reality in the world, is enormous. It started out, think about this, just a handful of people in an upper room is the visible church under the new covenant. Of course, God's people have persisted throughout all the ages. But the administration of the new covenant starts out so small, and it blooms into this gargantuan thing that has cathedrals throughout the world, that has institutions funded with vast sums of money, manpower. And how can you possibly expect that the devil is going to sit back and say, I'm not getting in on that? And that plenty of sinful people are going to be drawn to it too, whether for pride or position or whatever. And so we're being prepared. But what the devil, what the enemy means for evil, God uses for good as well. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7 says, Now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Just pause and appreciate it. It says, a little while, if necessary. And our flesh always feels like it's taking too long and there's no point. No, relative to God's plan for your life, it is a little while and it is necessary or it would not be happening. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's mystery in how God does this. Sometimes a person, and I'm I'm speaking of my knowledge of, I have not lived an extraordinarily long amount of time, but over 30 years in the church, And I've watched people come and go. And there may be a person who comes in who is not a converted person. And maybe they're angling romantically after people who are there. And they become a force of temptation in the body. And the enemy is like, this is going to be good. We're going to get some people to stumble and it's going to wreck some things. And this person is professing to be a Christian, but they're not yet converted. And then that person comes to faith and they persevere for years. And here they were coming in, you thought, oh, they're, you know, they're a wolf. They come to faith and they're a lamb. Meanwhile, some of those who are drawn to them are then exposed as unbelievers and leave. God will not fail with this net to gather his elect. He will not fail. But there's also mixed in many who are not believers. Turn with me and look at Matthew 24, verse 9 and following. Here Christ was ridding his disciples and us of any expectation, any guarantee against the sorrows, the challenges of earthly life. He says in verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Think about that for a moment, by the way. Just a few disciples. Would these nations even know that they exist? And so there's going to come a point that all the nations of the world would know that the church exists and hate them. All nations. 
And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The mission is not going to fail. It will look like it is failing at times. It will look like there is no way that the church is going to last through the things coming upon it. And here we are called to persevere in spite of what we see around us, not to become disillusioned, even if the majority of professing Christians turn against you and hate you. Just this afternoon, I was having a conversation with a person outside, and they mentioned the famous story of Richard Wormbrand, a pastor, Lutheran pastor, and his wife. And this occurred during, basically, the closing of the Iron Curtain, the rise of well, the increasing influence of Russia throughout Eastern Europe as, at that time, an openly atheist nation. And Richard Wormbrand was a pastor in Romania. At one point, the government basically said, all of those who are pastors have to come on board and toe the line with everything we're saying, or you're going to get it. And he watched dozens of his colleagues stand up and take oaths that were contrary to the faith. And famously, now looking back, his wife basically elbowed him and said, you go up there, they are spitting in the face of Christ. And he did. And it cost him more than a decade in prison. And then eternity in heaven. On the other side of that, he didn't lose anything. He lost nothing. He gained all. But there's the temptation to become disillusioned. There's a second point that the Holy Spirit brings us to consider in this, a second purpose, a second response. Here in this parable, the Lord is calling you not to put empty confidence in titles, words, a hollow profession of faith. And that's definitely captured in this imagery. You have the net coming in, and sure, there are all these fish that are outside of the net. They're not even associated with the net. You think of the millions, millions, billions of people who are not professing Christians at all. They're not associated with the promises. And now all these fish are in the net, and oddly in this parable, the parables are not to, meant to be you know, allegories where every single detail means something. But here you want to be a fish in the net. As all these fish come in, they may tell themselves, I'm a catch. I'm desirable to God for one reason or another. And then they are separated out. Even so, there are many people who simply by virtue of their connection to the visible church, one way or another, they associate themselves with the promises, but they will be found not true believers on that day. By the way, being found a true believer is not rocket science. I would not want to upset your assurance and make you feel like there's there's some secret way to know that you're a believer. Put no confidence in your flesh or your works or anything you could do. Put all your confidence in Christ that he is the Savior from beginning to the end. Don't put your faith in your faith. Try to figure out, well, do I really, really believe? Go with it and leave it in God's hands. And then in the power of the Spirit, walk in the way of faith. And when you fall, as you inevitably will, you stand up and you go again. This is the way of faith. 
I was having a uh, conversation with a brother this past week, a, a wonderful conversation with a brother who knows quite a lot about apologetics, which is the defense of the faith on reasonable grounds, showing the reasonableness of the faith. And he had something of an epiphany as we were having this conversation, because he's been studying apologetics for years. He said it suddenly clicked that if he were ever to leave the faith, it would not be because he suddenly ran into some fact that he couldn't explain. At this point, he has the facts. He said, at this point, if I were to fall away, it'd be because there was some woman or some amount of money or some tiring of this Christian life. As one person said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been tried and found difficult. And for that reason, the Lord calls us not to put our faith simply in an empty profession, but to examine ourselves. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Two sides. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's a daily departing. It's a daily departing. And one of the characteristics of the genuinely converted person is that sin is a grief to you. It's a thorn. Even if it's a, comparatively, small sin that is stuck in you, it still gives you pain. You don't like it. And you say to yourself, Lord, surely there are things about myself that grieve you that I am so sinful I don't even know. But I want you to take those out too. Show me if there's any wayward disposition in my heart. Reveal this to me. One of the dangers is that people measure themselves by the bad fish. They ask, do I look like that one? And again, that one's an eel. And they say, well, then I must be walking with the Lord. And this is especially a danger for youth, but it does apply to everyone. You surround yourself with a bunch of people, but not a variety of ages. And the people that you're with tend to justify all the same sins at the same stages of life. And you all think it's okay and that you can walk this way. But we have to be called out of it. Again, we are not saved at all by our response. But we are saved through a response. There's a natural way that God calls his people into glory. Philippians 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation knowing it's God who works in you, not then saying, well, God's not going to do it, so I have to do it myself. But that's the danger that this parable lays out, that the net is so big that there are many fish in it who say, I'm in the kingdom. But there's going to be a day of kingdom cleansing, of separation, of taking out the pollution. And whatever you might think about others, you have to ask that question about yourself. When I was 20 years old, I had an opportunity to visit a group of Christians in Russia. And... That was, for me, probably the pivotal time in my life where I began to ask, do I actually know the Lord or is it just like a benefits plan that I'm paying into through good works? 
because I met these people who had comparatively nothing and lived in danger for their profession and yet seemed to me to love Christ for his own sake. And like even if they lost all the benefits, all the admiration, and I think even 20 years ago there was more admiration for being a Christian than there is now, by and large. Even without any of those things, they seemed, these people, this small group that I met, to love Christ and to think they had found the pearl. And so I put it to you as a question. Where are you? What are you in the net? And this is an opportunity then to look at it as gospel, not simply, a, it's, there is the part of judgment, and we have to own that. And that part can be frightening. But on the other hand, go back to the main metaphor here. So you come to conclude, think about the way that this is a good news image as well. God did not drop a single line. He put out a net. And the net is also to tell us that his desire is to gather to himself a multitude no man can number. When Jesus sent the disciples at the point to drop the net, they said to him, literally, they're on a boat, and he's calling out to them. He says, drop the net on the other side of the boat. And they say, Lord, we've been laboring all night. We've caught nothing. And the Lord of the fish says, do it again. And they catch more fish than they've ever seen before. Humanly speaking, we can't expect anyone to come to faith. And humanly speaking, you can't expect yourself to persevere. But he is the Lord of the fish. He walks on the water. He made a fish that can swallow and deliver a Jonah. He can deliver you into salvation as well. And there's no basis to say, I I don't think I can be a part of that. The gospel is incredibly wide in its willingness to take in anyone who comes with the desire to be received in Christ. God's idea of a good fish is not the world's idea of a good fish. God's idea of a good fish is the tax collector on his knees outside of the temple saying, Woe am I! I am a sinner! Have mercy upon me! And God says, that's a good one. And God formed that in him. God's idea of a good fish is a humble fish. If you desire this kingdom, he welcomes you. Finally, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, simply take joy in your calling. It takes a lot of people to haul in a big, heavy net full of fish. The Lord says to Peter, come follow me. I will make you a fisher of men. There's a lot of hauling to do. And the Lord, if he has brought you into his church, he has some way, some role for you to lay a hand to the line and to heave and to pull in. He didn't need to use you, but if you are in Christ, I have no reason to doubt he is using you for the salvation of others. Let's thank him for that and let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for gathering a people to yourself. It's an awesome, in some ways, a a frightening thought to imagine anyone being cast away from your presence. And yet we acknowledge before you, Lord, that no one who is cast out will be found not to have received a just sentence. We pray not for justice upon ourselves, but we thank you that in Christ justice has been done. 
We thank you that you receive us freely through him. We ask, Lord, that you would please work through us to draw in all peoples, every tribe and tongue and nation. We pray that you would help us not to become disillusioned when we see multitudes who profess your name live in a way contrary to you. We ask that you would not allow offense to take root in this church such that if there should be at any point scandal or harm that we would say, well, then this can't be true. Help us to trust in Christ and his word and not in people. We pray for you to be glorified in all of it. We ask, Father, as well, that you'd please nourish our bodies even as we have an opportunity to partake of a meal together. We thank you for those who have provided. We ask that you in every way would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.